you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. May Martinez, as California tries to ramp up its vaccine rollout, a debate has arisen over who should get it next. Vulnerable populations or anyone who's ready to go? It's a question of equity versus speed. Plus, kids with COVID in Latino communities, the numbers of science and what could be done to help limit the spread. It's all coming up on Take Two. Stay with us. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. Me, Martinez, thanks for starting the week with us. Coming up. I know that in this country, traditionally, we say public safety and people say police. Police are only one aspect of the public safety process. We continue our conversations about what's next when it comes to police and social justice reform in Los Angeles. And today, we're chatting with community advocate Akila Shirelles, who started the nonprofit The Reverence Project in Watts. That conversation is just ahead. But first, to the coronavirus vaccine. We've been closely following the rollout across California since the first doses were delivered in December. Now, back then, Governor Gavin Newsom promised to keep equity in mind when getting people vaccinated. That way, communities who were at the highest risk of getting and dying from COVID, when they would get prioritized. But that does not seem to be happening. The vaccine rollout remains slow, and reports are that people with more resources have been getting doses, even if they're not supposed to be eligible yet. Now, the state is switching almost entirely to an age-based eligibility system, prioritizing people 65 and older. It's a group the Centers for Disease Control says is at a higher risk of hospitalization or death from the virus than others. But still, California is struggling to balance speed with equity. Barbara Fader Ostrove has been covering this. She's a contributing writer for Cal Matters covering the pandemic. Now, Barbara, just for starters, what was the rationale for making people 65 and older the priority? Basically, the state realized that the system it was trying to develop was really cumbersome and difficult to enforce. It had a number of essential jobs. It was trying to prioritize equity by allocating vaccine to certain communities. And it was very, very hard for people to understand. So under pressure to speed up vaccinations and get more shots in arms, the state decided to uh, go by federal guidelines and and open up eligibility to anybody 65 and older. And when that happened, there was a lot of pushback. What's been the biggest pushback against that? I think primarily from the disability community, they were not uh, included in the 65 and over group, although they have been in other states. Uh, Also, people with chronic medical conditions, you might imagine someone with uh, COPD or heart disease or uh, severe asthma 
or diabetes, all of whom have uh, increased risk if they get COVID um, being not included because they might be 63 or 64. So uh, that community is lobbying hard uh, to be included and it remains to be seen whether that will happen. And now there's a debate over whether we should get just as many people inoculated as fast as possible or make sure those who uh, need it the most get it first. Uh, Barbara, why was the state's eligibility proposal so complicated to figure out? Because the state was trying to balance a whole bunch of competing objectives. So you've got speed, getting as many doses in arms as possible. Then you have uh, the fact that throughout the pandemic, certain communities have just been much harder hit than others. So for example, uh, the death rate for Latinos in this state is 20% higher than statewide. Uh, People in low-income communities, they're almost 40% higher to get infected. Uh, often because they have essential jobs that put them on the front line of interacting with the public. Barbara, you mentioned how the state was trying their best to at least appease as many different competing interests here as possible. And and obviously, it's very, very difficult in the middle of a pandemic. But has this back and forth over who gets vaccinated when, did that contribute at all to the slow rollout? Do we know if if that played a a role or a factor? There are many factors in um, the slowness of the rollout, uh, especially the response from the federal government at the time. Um, Things are improving now so that um, counties and uh, large medical providers get a better sense of how much vaccine they'll be allocated so they can plan ahead for mass vaccination clinics and where to send their vaccine. At the beginning, they were only getting about a week's notice, which, as you can imagine, really makes it very difficult to do any planning. Now the goal is about three weeks of uh, doses uh, in advance so they'll know how much they're getting. So, Barbara, I think maybe a a bigger question then is, would vaccinating people as fast as possible, uh, directly or indirectly, benefit the most people? I mean, what's your general sense from those you've talked to? There's a real debate in the public health community about this. There are some people who argue that just because we have these new, more infectious uh, variants coming online, that we need to get vaccine into as many arms as possible. And the competing viewpoint is that we really need to go where the case rates are the highest to stop the spread. You know, one of the biggest concerns leading up to the vaccination rollout was about guarding against anyone jumping ahead in line or using um, their, their privilege or wealth to get the vaccine before their schedule to how much of that has been happening? A good amount. Uh, There's some really crazy stories out there. Down in uh, the desert area in Rancho Mirage, you saw uh, one hospital offering the vaccine early to its donors before opening up vaccination clinics to the general public. We've even seen reports of Hollywood executives just, you know, flying their private jets out to Florida, uh, where the vaccine criteria is looser. And, you know, these are really troubling examples. I think it was expected because this kind of thing happens all the time. I think the state was trying really hard to guard against this. And I think, you know, people are doing the best they can. But if you've got speed as a factor and as a driving imperative, you're going to have a really hard time 
screening everybody to the extent that nobody can jump the line. We're talking to contributing writer Barbara Fader Ostrove covering the pandemic for Cal Matters. Over the last few months, uh, Barbara, what's been the argument to prioritize equity? And and I guess how would that be figured out? Because, yeah, it's it's a very difficult, uh, touchy thing, considering that if this is life and death we're talking about. This isn't just some other policy. Sure. I mean, it's been hard to overstate the devastation in some communities. Uh, In some communities uh, in Los Angeles, for example, the case rates are five times higher uh, than those in other parts of the city, even more. the death rates are far higher for black and brown people than they are for the rest of California as a whole. Equity means getting the vaccine to the communities where it is needed most. The state had had a plan to allocate vaccine to communities that place low on a health index. But now they're looking at only reserving about 20% of the state's doses for that purpose and then uh, devoting the rest to people 65 and older and the few essential worker groups that have been designated as priority for now. Now, do you expect the state to make any changes to the vaccination timeline for people with disabilities? And why might they do this? I think things will open up as more vaccine comes online. You know, new vaccines will be coming online in the coming months. Uh, We will get a bigger supply. So I would expect to see an easing. And then the state will also uh, perhaps include people with disabilities and chronic medical conditions, uh, perhaps with the group that's maybe 50 to 64, which is expected to be the next group in line. Considering the concerns of all of these groups that are worried about uh, the state maybe not prioritizing the most vulnerable populations anymore, why hasn't the state released uh, demographic data on those who have been vaccinated? I think that's coming. We've been asking for it in the media for sure. Uh, I'm sure uh, public health folks would like to see it too. The state did release that type of information for testing and it revealed you know, grave disparities in who was getting testing uh, along the same lines as what we're seeing now. I think when the state releases demographic data, just as in certain counties where we've already seen that data and across the nation, we will see disparities with lower income people and black and brown people being vaccinated at lower rates. Contributing writer Barbara Fader-Ostrov is covering the pandemic for Cal Matters. Her piece is titled Sacrificing Equity for Speed, California's COVID Vaccine Rollout Stirs Concern. Barbara, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, staying now with that issue of equity, all throughout California, the Latino community has been disproportionately affected by COVID-19, and that includes children. With us to discuss this is Elizabeth Aguilera, reporter for Cal Matters, covering health and social services. Now, Elizabeth, you joined us back in July of 2020 to talk about the rising COVID-19 cases among all children. So where do the numbers stand right now statewide and also right here in Los Angeles County? 
Well, across the state, a more than 400,000 kids have tested positive for the virus. And here in L.A. County, that number is now 134,000 kids. That doesn't include our two largest cities of Long Beach and Pasadena because, you know, they have their own public health departments. We've also had at least seven California children who've died from COVID-19 since the pandemic began. So, you know, these numbers are continuing to rise along with the number of adults. And then we've also got, you know, a slice of youngsters who are diagnosed with this new rare inflammatory syndrome. And that's also a number that's growing and concerning pediatric experts. All right. Now, your most recent reporting has focused on Latino children. Now, what did you find there? Well, Latino children have been impacted more than any other groups of children. Statewide, they account for 64% of COVID-19 cases among kids under 18. This is where the state knows the race and ethnicity of the children. Sometimes they don't. Latino children only make up 48% of the state's children. So there's a huge concern about how often and how many of these kids are getting sick. Experts I spoke with, though, say they're not surprised. They say the child cases reflect what's going on with adults. And as you know, in California... Latinos account for 54% of cases of COVID among adults, and that's being traced back to the fact that they're most often essential workers like drivers, you know, restaurant cooks, grocery workers, and then they also sometimes live together in crowded conditions with extended family members or other family groups where it's really difficult to isolate. And that's true nationally. We're seeing that across the country. Racial and ethnic trend lines among children mirror what's happening with adults. Kids are not going to school We're not seeing kids out a whole lot. So they're really getting it from their people, their adults, their family members. And the majority of children in the U.S. who've been diagnosed with the infection and the inflammatory syndrome have been Latino or Black. And that's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. All throughout this pandemic, children have largely been spared, uh, not getting nearly as sick as adults if they show symptoms at all. Last time we spoke, though, you told us there had been no deaths of children under 18 in California. So where does the science and the numbers stand now? Well, it's still true that kids usually experience mild to no symptoms of the infection. But it's what's happening to a small number of them a few weeks afterward that has doctors worried. I mentioned that in California, we've had seven deaths of children and the state isn't differentiating whether, you know, it was their COVID-19 experience or if it happened when they got this rare inflammatory syndrome the doctors have been studying. These syndrome cases are happening three to six weeks after the children experience COVID. And so right now with the surge that we've been having, pediatric experts are waiting for this new surge of syndrome cases. It's still very rare among kids, but as the numbers overall grow, they also expect to see the syndrome grow. And it's called multi-system inflammatory syndrome in kids. It's MISC is the, uh, an acronym as there always is one. And it hits kids three to six weeks after they've experienced coronavirus, even if they had mild or no symptoms at all. So a lot of times parents maybe didn't even notice that their kid got sick because it's a 24 hour little not feeling well or a little bug, a little fever. And then three to six weeks later, they're having very serious symptoms that result in hospitalization. Later this week, we're going to hear more about multi-symptom inflammatory syndrome in our Ask an Expert segment. Uh, But Elizabeth, since you brought it up, remind us what the symptoms are and how many children have been affected. So overall, California has had only 188 cases. And the majority of those are here in L.A. County with 66 so far. And the symptoms start a few weeks after kids have COVID, and they might show a sign of fever, rash, pain. There's sort of a a whole variety of symptoms that kids might have, but fever and rash seem to be the pretty prominent ones. And doctors are urging parents to watch for these signs because the earlier they get treatment, the better off they'll be. 
the body basically creates this inflammatory response to the infection that they had previously. And for some kids, that can really impact their major organs, including their heart. And so a lot of them continue to be observed because they've had some heart damage or heart impacts that hopefully they will recover from. But doctors are definitely wanting parents to be on the watch for this. And as you've been keeping tabs on this, Elizabeth, what have you been hearing from parents? What sticks with me from my interviews with parents is the worry they have once their kids have had COVID, if they're aware of the syndrome, and then how watchful they're being in the weeks afterwards. You know, I spoke with a mom who was counting down the weeks from when her son had had the infection to be out of the woods from hopefully getting this syndrome. And one Orange County mom whose son did get the syndrome and had been in the hospital, you know, worried that he would die when he was in the hospital because his symptoms were so bad that, you know, he needed all of these treatments to help him recover and is still being watched by doctors for how his heart is doing, how his liver is doing. So, it, you know, it doesn't come and go quickly. This is something that stays with families. And another mom in Los Angeles told me, you know, her toddler recovered from the syndrome after being in the hospital for a few weeks, but she's still, you know, avidly checking on him at night, making sure he's okay. Like this really, really impacts families and especially parents who are super worried about their kids. One more thing, Elizabeth, we've heard so much about the challenges of remote learning, but it sounds as if uh, there's at least a risk to children and their families. So what have you heard from lawmakers and experts? And what does this mean for schools and the chance, the possibility for reopening sometime soon? Officials really want kids to go back to school in person. And there's a lot of discussion about how to do it safely, right? They're talking about masks, social distancing, vaccines for teachers. But you have so many parties involved that it's going to be tough. No one can agree on exactly how to do that. Teachers are not quite getting vaccinated yet in most places across the state. And parents play a role, too. You know, I hear many parents who are ready for their kids to go back tomorrow to the building. Others who are more cautious or worry about the new, more contagious strain. Maybe their children have had COVID. I spoke with one mom whose child did get COVID and is, you know, recovered now, but she worries about him going back to school and maybe getting reinfected or being a carrier and bringing it home. Uh, so there's a lot of different groups involved and it makes it a tougher conversation, except, you know, I think what we can say is the conversation continues in the state is definitely trying to figure this out. That's Elizabeth Aguilera, reporter for Cal Matters, covering health and social services. Elizabeth, thanks a lot. Thank you, A. All right, now, one of the primary components of the phrase defund the police is about how and where the defunded money is going to be spent. Now, putting those funds back into communities where maybe there won't be as many police officers is supposed to do what police have been accused of not being able to do, and that's bring down crime numbers. Coming up, the case for reallocation. That's next when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming at kpcc.org. I'm Martinez. 
There are a lot of changes on the way in 2021. For people in Los Angeles, one of the most anticipated changes is hopefully a new relationship between L.A.'s law enforcement and communities of color. But what would it look like? Today, we're continuing our series of conversations with experts and stakeholders, each giving their take on what's ahead. And we wanted to look at the idea of reallocation. Activists want to redirect some of the budget meant for law enforcement back into the community. There are some programs that have been in L.A. for years that could be models for what the city spends its money on and that the founders say could be models in preventing crime before it happens. Now, one of those founders is Akila Shirelles, who started the Reverence, the Reverence Project, a nonprofit in Watts that offers a range of community services. Akila, welcome. Thank you so much. Sure, sure. Now, in the early 90s, you helped uh, negotiate a peace treaty between the Crips and Bloods. Can you give us a sense of the environment back then that made you in the community uh, take it upon yourself to do that? Grew up in the joint down housing projects, participated in many social justice activists called the longest running war in the history of this country, urban street gang wars. But because many of the the victims and the perpetrators were black and brown uh, youth and young adults, and we live in a, a country that's still built on systemic racism and implicit bias, our cries fell on deaf ears in many cases. So it was a really intense time, high levels of police misconduct and excessive force issues, our neighborhoods being over-policed. The thing that pushed me over the edge was that 1989, I lost 13 friends that I grew up with. This thing was heartbreaking, man. It was personal. We're talking about thousands of people dying in the community and very little response from law enforcement. When we started organizing the peace treaty, I mean, people told us that we was crazy and it was impossible and it, it, it couldn't be done. And in 92, uh, April 28, 1992, we organized the peace treaty and it changed the quality of life in the community. In what way? In what way? The first the first two years of the peace treaties, uh, gang homicides dropped 44 percent in the neighborhood. Many men became fathers to their children. You'd be surprised, man. Watts is 2.2 square miles um, and it, it has the largest concentration of public housing west of the Mississippi. The railroad tracks separates like the bloods and the crips. And this narrative that we grew up with, you know, and that and bought into of crips and bloods created enemies for us. I mean, I, I literally watched people murdered. And years later, my own son murdered. I mean, today, still 57% of homicides in LA County are unsolved. So it, it became in, apparent upon us that law enforcement wasn't going to come and rescue us, that nobody was going to come and solve our problem but us. And so it sounds like so so it sounds like you definitely could not have even imagined for one second that the LAPD could have tried to do the same thing that you did with the same amount of trust among people. Never. I know that in this country, traditionally, we say public safety and people say police. Police are only one aspect of the public safety process. They're parachuting in, they collect some information, and then they leave, right? And then they have to be called back. This public safety model, police as a single point of contact, has been a huge failure, you know, in our respective community because we put so much pressure on our cops to be therapists and teachers and coaches and counselors, and we don't invest in public safety infrastructure that is needed to support policing in the city. Now, the LAPD and city officials uh, today are trying to figure out how to both uplift communities of color and also change the way those communities are served by the police. Uh, Akila, what's, what's your own attitude and trust level for what's being said so far by city leaders? I mean, I don't have a tremendous amount of trust in, in what people say. I want to see what they do. So it's about smart policing, more de-escalation training for cops. But the lion's share of investment should go towards community-based intervention 
in building out community-based public safety infrastructure. Well, let's get let's get into that a bit because I want to talk to you about uh, your own work in the community uh, today at the Reverence Project. Uh, nonprofit, uh, small staff of people includes a kind of a strike force team that deals with gang disputes uh, diplomatically before uh, police intervene. It's called uh, the Gang Reduction Development Program. Tell us uh, how it works. So a high-risk intervention is intervenes in individual and group conflicts, both historic and personal, and they leverage their personal relationships and reputations in community to mediate conflicts to a peaceful um, resolve. We do safe passage, right, mm. around local schools, making school, sure our, uh, our kids go to school in the morning safely, they come home safely. We mediate the conflicts that happen out there because we did a study and discovered that a lot of the violence that happens in the community sometimes starts on the school campus and spills into the neighborhood on the weekend, and then vice versa, spills from the neighborhood on the weekend into the campus on Monday morning. So assertive outreach is important. So it sounds so it sounds like it's 24-7, 365. I mean, are, are you guys on call? Absolutely. Okay, wow. Absolutely. Our high-risk intervention team is on call 24 hours. We also are on the police dispatch Mm -hmm. in order to get faster responses to 911 calls. We show up on the scene. We never cross the yellow line. That's the police domain. Mm -hmm. We collect all of our information, intelligence from residents. And essentially what we're checking for is if there was a shooting or somebody was, you know, was harmed, we're checking checking for the triggers because when the trauma is not addressed, it ripples. And the things you mentioned, just to be clear, all of this is something that you couldn't count on the LAPD to do. Not at all. Traditionally, when we think of law enforcement and you think of public safety, the police comes in, somebody commits a crime, they apprehend a perpetrator, arrest them, and they put them in jail. Problem solved. The reality is this. Putting someone in jail does not solve the problem. People ain't dead in jail. They're alive. Pookie can actually call a shot that impacts the street and vice versa. Somebody can call the street that impacts the jailhouse. And so it requires maintenance and long-term conference, I mean, relationships. It's an ongoing relationship, you know, that requires maintenance. And law enforcement are just not equipped to do that. You mentioned the streets, going into the jails, but I want to ask you about one other part of this because this is fascinating to me. You also go as far as going to the hospitals when victims or or perpetrators of violence end up needing medical care. So uh, how does that work and why does that prevent uh, further violence? Well, you know, a, a few years ago, Dr. Rich wrote a profound book out of Boston he was a trauma surgeon and he was seeing these guys getting shot in the street and coming three, four times before they were, you know, expired into his hospital. And he was like, somebody's throwing the babies in the bathwater and they're like, you know, you can pull them out in the river or you can go upstream, you know what I'm saying? And arrest the cause of it, right? So hospital-based violence intervention programs was created. The way that uh, hospital-based violence intervention works is that community-based intervention partners with the hospital. We actually have community health workers embedded in the trauma unit at the hospital. So when individuals say when Raheem gets shot and he comes into the hospital, our community health workers go bedside and share with them about the organization and the work that we can provide services. We can help mediate the conflict that potentially sent them there, consent them to participate in a program. And then a community health worker will come in and work with that person to mediate that conflict. So when that person comes back into the neighborhood, our high risk intervention has to leverage their relationships to go talk to Pookie and them to say, hey, man, we know that there's a conflict between you and Raheem and them. Like, what can we do to help mediate that situation so that when he comes home, he's not coming back into a situation where he's going to get shot and killed? We're talking to Akila Shirell's founder of The Reverence Project, a nonprofit in Watts that offers a range of community services. Now, to people who say that having police on the streets is the best way to make communities safer, what evidence do you have that, uh, that your own work has made your own neighbors feel safe? So, you know, I do this work all across the country. So let's talk about Newark, New Jersey. The mayor tapped me in 2014 to build out his community-based public safety initiative. We started with 16 staff, 
uh, credible messengers in the neighborhood. The city had 105 murders in 2014 when we started. In 2016, in our first two years, we had double-digit reductions in homicide, 12% reduction in the first two years. In 2019, we had a negative 48% reductions in homicides in the South Ward, uh, in the city of Newark, which has been on the top 10 most violent city list for almost 50 consecutive years. This is because of our coordinated public safety strategy that we have going on here that is heavily driven by the community. When, when the, the George Floyd, the, the public execution of George Floyd sparked protests, 25 million people all across the country. In Newark, we had over 12,000 people come out for the protests in the street. We had not a single arrest. And this is because community-based intervention was on the front line and we engaged all of the rebel rousers. You know, everywhere the rebel rousers went to try to, you know, break a window or something like that, we stopped it. Wow. Now, you know, the city of L.A. is uh, looking to expand its community safety partnership program, which has been around for almost a decade. That's where officers uh, might hold regular forums with communities to figure out the issues that they want more police attention on. We've talked about it with other guests. Uh, Tell us uh, what's your opinion of it. Community safety partnership to me is a targeted deterrent strategy. Because it, it sees cops, not I mean, officers, not just as a tool to go and arrest and to maintain like the rule of law in the community, but these officers are a resource. They come in a little bit more well-educated. They have a little bit more um, experience in terms of, you know, the field and they, they play multiple roles. So they're not just focused on public safety in the neighborhood. They're being coaches on the track team. They're doing tutoring programs and services. Now, I believe that there are enough people in the community to provide that particular service. But ultimately, you know, I'm a big advocate and supporter of community-based um, public safety because I think it's the future of policing in this country. You know, the city and the county here in L.A., they're still struggling with the idea of defunding the police and reinvesting in the community. So what's your pitch for them to invest more in community safety partnership program and your own nonprofit? You know, just in terms of, of, in, uh, of investment, the city needs to be investing heavily in community-based public safety. The Gang Reduction Youth Development Program, uh, we need to change the name of it. And I, I heard that they now they moved it under, uh, under the Public Safety Department because uh, high-risk intervention actually does public safety work in the community. And I think there are, are much more having a greater impact in communities than, than law enforcement. Akila, for people who are looking uh, for easy changes that are fast, is there anything that the community or officers can do to get that relationship changing right away while we wait for, for longer-term goals to pan out? I just heard a brother say today that I thought something it was really profound. He said, change moves at the speed of trust. If we're going to make real change, we're going to have to get together. We're going to have to unpack our trauma and expose ourselves to each other so that we can learn to trust each other so that we can actually create real change. Change moves at the speed of trust. Akilah, you got to get that on a T-shirt or on a cap or something. <laughs> Akilah Shirell's founder of the Reverence Project, a nonprofit in Watts that offers a range of community services. Akilah, thank you very much. Thank you so much, A. I appreciate you. Still a really good phrase. Change moves at the speed of trust. That's absolutely true. All right. Now, being in prison has not shielded people from being infected by the coronavirus. Uh, One of the proposed solutions in Orange County is to let some inmates out. But the sheriff down there says, hold on a second. We'll find out why when Take Two continues. Stay with us.
Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. I'm A. Martinez. There's a fight going on in the courts over how to address COVID-19 spread in Orange County's jails. A judge wants a plan to release more inmates to slow transmission, but Orange County Sheriff says he's already let go of everyone who can be released safely. KPCC's Robert Garova reports. Last year, the ACLU sued Orange County over conditions in its jails under COVID-19. Corrine Kendrick is deputy director of the ACLU's National Prison Project. The conditions in the jails were abysmal. The suit cites crowded conditions and delays in access to care, among other concerns. For starters, the ACLU called for a reduction in the jail population. Sheriff Don Barnes did start releasing some low-level offenders. He says he's freed nearly 1,500 so far. But in December, OC Superior Court Judge Peter Wilson said it wasn't enough. He ordered Barnes to come up with a plan to release or transfer about 800 more inmates. Barnes pushed back, saying many of those who would be released are dangerous. He argued that setting them free would put the community at substantial risk. Kendrick says around the same time, the virus started spreading more rapidly in the OC jails. And then just much like in the community, over the holidays, it just exploded inside the jail. At one point, there was almost 1,200 people who were positive. So far, two inmates have died. Kendrick says the sheriff's department has made it clear it doesn't want to make the call on who else to let go. Judge Wilson revealed that the county had brought over 34 boxes of files and just dumped them on the court and said, here you go. Sheriff Barnes says he's not alone in not wanting to release more people. Almost every city in Orange County has come out in support of myself in trying to stop this mass release of inmates. Many of them, if not all of them, are being held for significant crimes, violent crimes that would be released back into the community. Daisy Ramirez monitors the OC jails for the ACLU. She says Barnes' argument is based on fear-mongering. And I think it's important for people to know that many of the folks that are currently in the Orange County jails have not been tried or convicted of a crime. Ramirez says since the beginning of the pandemic, the ACLU has heard from more than a thousand people concerned about conditions in the OC jails. People like Sochi Viella, who says her husband is awaiting trial for attempted murder. He has been tested, but they never gave them answers. And Marianne Madrillas, whose son is awaiting trial on homicide charges. He got the COVID and he said that they didn't give him no medicine for pain, for fever. Joanna Diaz says her brother, Jose Armendariz, is currently incarcerated at OC's Theo Lacey Jail. He has a type 1 diabetic and he has like asthma and blood pressure issues. Armendariz has been behind bars since 2007 when he was arrested at age 16. He was tried as an adult and convicted of first-degree murder even though he wasn't the shooter. He's been at Theo Lacey since 2014 as the courts consider whether he should have been tried as an adult. Diaz says her brother tells her staff at the facility are not following pandemic protocols. If he were to contact 
COVID, it would be very terrible for his health. He has to deal with that and the constant stress. Armendariz recorded a poem he wrote about the recent surge in cases in the jail. In it, he speaks directly to Sheriff Barnes. It is because of your own disobedient staff that refuse to follow CDC guidelines that this is happening. It is because you deliberately house people like myself who are COVID negative in close quarters with people that you are fully aware have tested positive for the virus. For his part, Barnes contends that a plan has always been in place for mitigating the spread of COVID-19. We have strategies in place within our jail for quarantine, isolation, hygiene, masks, cleaning materials. That has proven to work. The number of positive cases in the jails has dropped dramatically since the surge over the holidays. But the ACLU says the jails are still too crowded, so another surge could be just around the corner. Meanwhile, the sheriff's department has indicated it may appeal Judge Wilson's order to come up with a plan to further reduce the jail population. The ACLU's Corrine Kendrick says this is all taking too long. We're trying to emphasize that this is an emergency and we really need to get moving. The legal standoff over conditions in the OC jails may outlast the wait to get inmates vaccinated against COVID-19. The OC Health Agency is projecting it will begin vaccinations in the jails this month. Covering criminal justice, I'm Robert Garova. All right, now to an unsettling issue. Former service members continue to die from suicide at a higher rate than non-veterans. Several new federal laws will take effect this year that are intended to reduce those numbers, but some suicide prevention advocates say more help is needed at the local level. From Washington, Caitlin Kim reports for the American Homefront Project. Kristen Christie is often called a subject matter expert on the issue of suicide for active duty military, veterans, and their families. It's not by choice. Twelve years ago, her husband Don, a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, died by suicide. I had no idea. Suicide was not on my radar whatsoever. Her husband deployed to Iraq in 2004. When he talked to his family about his experience, he focused on the positives, meeting dignitaries or USO tours. It wasn't until after his death in 2008 that Christie learned that a major part of his work was repatriating remains of service members. He just couldn't verbalize, but he was in charge of the human remains. And in April of 2004, his first month there, they had had 94 casualties. His death by suicide changed not just her life, but those of their two young sons, who both struggled with the loss of their father. Her younger son left her a tearful message on his 20th birthday about the hole left in his life. It was used as part of an Air Force suicide prevention campaign. This all led Christie to become a suicide prevention advocate, not just learning about the signs, which can vary from person to person, but how the ripple effect hits families and friends. She spent much of the last several years working with active duty military and veterans groups near her home in Colorado Springs. I say we're on an emotional battlefield. And how can we arm our veterans, our active duty and their family members with the armor and the weapons that they need to combat whatever they're going through. It's a multi-front battle. When the Air Force saw a rise in suicide within its ranks, it held a one-day stand-down to focus on prevention. 
At the end of last year, Congress passed a legislative package to bolster and expand veterans' mental health care and provide funds for community organizations helping vets. Republican Senator Jerry Moran of Kansas says these measures will help. While this legislation puts in place the critical care, services, and support that will save veterans' lives, it's my hope that the bill will also serve as a signal to our veterans, service members, and their families that they are never, never alone. Still, Dwayne France argues much more needs to be done to reduce veteran suicide. He's director of veteran services for the Family Care Center in Colorado Springs and an Army veteran himself. We need to be able to establish infrastructure, both in personnel and in funds, at the community level so we can address it where it's happening, rather than trying to establish this blanket um, overarching solution, so to speak. Picture an inverted pyramid. He says there are lots of resources and people on the federal and even state level who work on suicide prevention, less so at the local level. And that's where France argues the front lines of prevention are. His Colorado County loses a veteran once a week to suicide. Uh, not all veterans who die by suicide are experiencing a mental health crisis. It could be financial. It could be rel relational. It could be employment related. Um, and so we really need to be able to have a community response. While France appreciates the work Congress is doing, he notes legislative solutions always lag behind. It will be a year or more before these bills are fully implemented and several years before we see if they made any difference. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim. All right, beautiful and inspiring music with a good story behind it. I mean, who would want to hear as much of that as you can get these days? That exactly is coming up next when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and most places you get your podcasts. I mean, Martinez. This weekend, the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra premiered the newest work of composer Derek Spiva Jr., Mother of Bravery. But it's another work, not yet fully released, that we want to share with you today. Because last year, amid a pandemic, as well as political and racial strife, Spiva completed the piece to be a horizon, which, like so much of his work, combines Western classical music with influences from around the world, such as Ghanaian drumming, Persian classical music, gospel, and a lot more. Paulina Cherizova spoke with Spiva about To Be a Horizon and the birth of his genre-breaking musical style. Listen to the sounds of the horizon. 
the warmth of golden harmonies, the celebration of cultural communities coming together. Composer Derek Spiva Jr. blends it all together, creating the American music aesthetic he always longed to hear. I was looking for this kind of music that uh, I wasn't really hearing. So I was like, well, maybe I should just try and write it myself. In May, Spiva released an excerpt of To Be a Horizon, the third part of his larger series, Prism Cycles and Leaps. The title To Be a Horizon is expressing like how it's impossible to reach an endpoint, right? If you're looking at the horizon, you're like, oh, I'm going to go there. Like you can't go there. You just end up going around the earth. And it's kind of a metaphor for saying like, if you are a horizon, you can open yourself up to an infinite amount of ways to communicate and connect with somebody else. excerpt begins with Spiva and Siley Oak counting Aditala. It's an eight-beat rhythmic cycle from South Indian classical music. Spiva's teacher, Yekula Zepakol, is playing on a kalabash, a hollowed-out bowl-shaped gourd. The Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra enters with an exotic melody. So you have everybody from all of these different cultures, like involved in this work and they're not just doing something where they've went ahead and just given up their culture to do someone else's. When Spiva was younger, his dad would go on trips all around the world. He would bring back musical recordings from all of these different cultures, from Bulgarian choral music to instruments like the Armenian duduk. Spiva was exposed to sounds he had never heard before. He remembers the first time he heard a South African vocal group called Lady Blacksmith Mombazo. It just felt so warm and just so profound. I, I almost cried. The more he listened, the more his curiosity grew. For me, it was always like, ooh, I wonder if that genre would go with this one. Or I wonder if this instrument would go with that instrument. Eventually, he found the world of film music, a genre that crosses boundaries all the time. He would go to the store and buy hordes of CDs, records, and soundtracks from films like Jurassic Park or The Siege, finding tiny kernels of these moments he wanted to hear more of. One of the soundtracks that influenced him most was from Alien 3 by Elliot Goldenthal. It includes a woman's choir Indonesian gamelan, and brass-like sounds that have been run through a processor. It's meant to like make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and be like, oh my gosh, like, <laughs> are they gonna eat me too? These two contrasting things of me being absolutely terrified, but it also sounding beautiful. Whoa, like these two things can exist in the same space? Spiva realized he can use music to bring different cultures into the same space. Spiva has roots from Ghana, Nigeria, Ireland, and Great Britain. He grew up in the Central Valley, the productive agricultural region of California. As an African-American with multicultural ancestry, he often felt out of place. There was always this kind of constant uh, check-in that I would do with myself, I guess, wondering if I was doing what needed to be done to be part of the group. Like in To Be a Horizon, Spiva includes influences from a ring, a dance form performed in Persian classical music, which is very similar to dance forms in West African music. 
you, you kind of find that, oh my gosh, like the, the way that they approach these things, it's the same kind of approach, even though the execution might be different, right? What, is, what does that the, kind of look like, if you can describe it? Uh, it's like three over two. So... That kind of layering and juxtaposition can be found in many different cultures around the world. And it often like evokes dance. It's not performative for Derek. For Derek, it is a statement of who he is at his core. That's Ben Cadwallader, executive director of the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra. It's this this authentic and, and beautiful commingling, interweaving of these different strands, these different rhythms, these different melodies, these different cultures in a way that only Derek can do. Spiva combines these various styles through classical music, but coming through to the classical community was a bit of a rough ride. I used to sit there at the back of uh, Royce Hall at UCLA, passing out programs, doing my job and just kind of sitting there listening to the orchestra, wondering when they were going to play my music, you know, and then one day they played it. Spiva embarked on his journey to bring people together through music. The climax of To Be a Horizon brings all of the diverse elements together. The rhythm picks up, everyone is dancing, it builds and builds. And it's like, well, if you're going to do all that building, you got to be building to something. And when we get to that something, the whole objective is to just kind of stay in that space for a little bit, that space of absolute joy. listen to the excerpt of To Be Your Horizon on the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra YouTube channel. Spiva plans for a full premiere once it's safe to return to concert halls again. In the meantime, he continues to write music, inspiring infinite ways for people to connect, to be like a horizon. For Take Two, I'm Polina Cherizova. I'll definitely stay in that space of joy. Anything I can get when it comes to joy these days. Uh, you can follow us uh, on Twitter. We're on Twitter at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well. At A Martinez LA. That's at A Martinez LA. Good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back tomorrow at 2. Talk to you then. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.